Hi, and welcome to Archery Ops Podcast, brought to you by Gold Tip Arrows and Beastinger Stabilizers. On each episode, we talk to top experts in archery and bow hunting about what it takes to shoot better and hunt better, target after target, hunt after hunt, shot after shot. I'm your host, Tim Gillingham. Let's roll. Well, first of all, I just want to welcome you to the Archery Ops Podcast. It's a new podcast by Gold Tip, and we just wanted to bring people on that had a you know wide, you know, diverse uh, skill sets. You know, you guys are known for your hunting, and, and your you know your dad, you know, has kind of put together a platform that showcases uh, you know your guys' growth into bow hunting and archery, and you know some of the challenges therein, and. You know, I, I looked over some of your stuff on on your website, and I, I thought it was a good topic that we, we could go over. You know, discussing whitetail bow hunting. I'm, I've lived out west my whole life. I've lived out here in Utah and Wyoming and and Alaska my whole life. So sometimes I envy you guys. You know, as I get older, because you get to go out yeah. and sit in a tree stand in the afternoon and hunt. And here it's just like it's an act of Congress to go hunt. I mean, it, it it really takes a lot of effort. You know, I just come off of a yeah. 13 day hunt on the Pavant and it was just a, it's a killer, man. I lost 13 pounds. Uh, Are you in Utah now? I'm in Utah now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I'm, I grew up in Great Falls. Montana. Yeah. I, I, I seen your phone number was uh, Montana. So. Yeah. Yeah. So I grew up there through junior year of high school before oh, we okay. moved to Iowa. So um, definitely I, my heart still lays with elk though. I mean, I like oh, yeah. white tails, but elk yeah. are just like a big bugle and bull. I hunt with, uh, I've hunt Montana. I actually got a deer tag and an antelope tag in Montana still. So I may jump on a plane and hunt up there with my my buddy Yossity Perkins killer. That guy, okay. man, he kills some big elk every year. I killed one up there, 360 bull a couple years ago, six by seven or seven by eight. And Jeez. he's crazy. I was just it's just so fun when you get a chance to hunt some private ground on, you know, down along those rivers and stuff. It's just. Is, is that near the breaks? Uh, he's in uh, Bernie. You know where that's at? I don't think so, actually. It's north of Sheridan. It's the middle of nowhere. Okay. So, you know. Yeah. Yeah. South, yeah, south, southwestern or southeastern. I'm sorry. So. So kind of by Billings. Billings. South of Billings. Yeah. 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 Yep. Those bulls there, for some reason, seem to get it. Big bulls in there, yeah, yeah. Rob Morgan, yeah. that Superior Archery, there they they killed two big bulls again this year. So, right, and they killed two last year that were just stompers. So, yeah, it's uh it's getting harder to draw for a non-resident, and you know that's kind of kind of tie into one of our topics we talk about today. Uh, you know, you know, the, it, I'm going to kind of just preface it, you know, but it's introducing kids and hunters to the outdoor lifestyle. It can be. It can be difficult out west, you know, because it's hard to get a tag. But uh, I think we ought to just we want to keep this kind of structured, keep it down to about an hour. And uh, I think I want to start with kind of, you know, a topic. Uh, I guess that, you know, if you're a whitetail bow hunter, you know, there's a lot of people out there getting into the sport, and you know that that maybe don't know that are going to listen to this podcast. And, and there's things that I didn't know. I mean, I went coos deer hunting with uh, Ray Bunny in Mexico about three years ago, four years ago. And I got in the ground blind and there were some issues popped up that I'd never expected. I couldn't see my pins in the ground blind. So, you know, when you guys whitetail bow hunt, what, what's your preference? I mean, is it, is it ground blind or is it a tree stand and, and, or do you use both? 
Um, both, you know, there's certain situations where we'll get into and we really don't have um, an opportunity to be able to get in a stand that we yeah. need want. And and that's great when we have those opportunities because then we we can still hunt them, you know. So sometimes if you're going to go down and do a food source or into mm -hmm. um, a waterway or something, there's really no way to get a stand to it. If I have my preference, I'm in a stand all the time. I just, okay. unless it's really cold, then, then I'm... Oh, I'm yeah. gonna weenie, I'd rather just sit in a blind. <laughs> yeah, no, no doubt. What, what's your thoughts on, uh, you know, because we were in Mac, we were down there in Mexico, we were running uh, Ozonics on yeah. a ground line. And I, I swear, I mean, we had deer come in downwind and it seemed like it was working, you know. So, I mean, did, did, what's your thoughts on that? Um, I think that Ozonics would be your best chance. I've had a few where I think that the newer units put out so much ozone, ozone that it may be overwhelming to the deer and they, and it kind of alarms them. Um, I had a deer I was trying to kill a few years ago that I, and maybe that's what I did wrong was I had two Ozonics units and, and everything in the blind because yeah. he was following this doe. And so I was, if the doe could get past me, then I could shoot the buck. Right. And right. I just couldn't get the doe past me. She kept hitting my wind. Well, I figured, you know, I did the, everything I could scent control ozonics the the works and that stick of dough still pecked me so yeah. ever That's since then i've focused on the wind and I'll, i wear old spikes in the stand i just i just said i'm just going to focus on the wind you know you know a, a interesting conversation i had with a guy that's pretty good bow owner you know jesse moorhead uh the name rings a bell yeah jesse and ginger moorhead they've been around they ran around with muzzy they were big promoters of muzzy forever and um but Jesse always used to build a fire out of green leaves and he would smoke himself every morning. And he said, it, he said, you know, they'll smell it, but they don't just freak out, you know, cause it's a, but I don't know. That, that seems a little <laughs> crazy to me, but. I, I've heard that a bunch of times and one more power to him. Cause I'm not going to douse myself in smoke and have to smell that the entire time. Yeah. But two, the thing I have a hard time grasping on that is if you think of dogs you know deer their nose works the same way they smell in layers so really they can smell your individual scent and they can smell the smoke so to me he probably just smells like a barbecue jet you know what i'm saying because you have or maybe it may, maybe it smells like he's further away or something not as big of a threat yeah well and that's the other thing i would wonder is i would think they would associate fire with danger so to me, I wouldn't try it, but it yeah, could I work. I, I would think he's like, you know, I, I had a guy I used to work with, Ben Reddington. And he's, I see him post some stuff. He, I think he works for uh, Onyx now, but he used to work for Primos, and he was my production manager. So, uh, But he's into bird hunting. And so the bird, bird smell, or the dog smell, the bird's breath. And... Uh, I, I wonder if you if you did do something like that, if you'd have to go, you know, full face mask. I remember reading an article in Bugle magazine years ago about this guy. He would he would sneak into a herd of elk. And this guy was psycho, man. He would he would douse this this cloth with elk piss and put it over his face. I'm like, man, I ain't doing that. <laughs> over his face? Over his face, yeah, because that's the only you know, because they were smelling your breath, you know. How do you not quarrel? Oh, I'd vomit. I would throw up. <laughs> but I couldn't do that. Funny what people will do. I mean, 
But uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, if I always said like this last Elcon, I mean, if they couldn't smell you, they wouldn't have a chance. <laughs> but oh, it, that is that's when you know I always laugh about this. Everybody talks about the innovation in 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 guns and muzzle loaders, and and they try to like whenever you bash them about. I got buddy build muzzle loaders. He's thinking about going to King of Two Mile with a muzzle loader. You know, That's I mean, insane. they're legitimately shooting half minute groups at 600 yards with muzzle loaders now. And it's like, it's basically a rifle. I mean, you can plug a guy into an 800 yard rifle like that right now, you know, with a, right. with a phone program or a, or a, or a Kestrel. I mean, it doesn't take that much to learn how to shoot that accurate at distance anymore. But then those guys try to compare that to the innovations in bow hunting and, you know, I, I like to think I'm at the top of the food chain of archery knowledge. And yet I still didn't get an arrow op in 13 days. Right. And, I mean, it was crazy. I mean, it was, it's just, it it's just the biggest problem with bow hunting is, is you're so close, you know, that they smell you, they sense you. I just met with a buddy, Dave Stepp, just killed a big 380 bull in Arizona. And Dave's a hell of a hunter. You know, he has big background in 3D archery. But they they followed this big bull, and he just smart enough to let him sit and not go in after him because he this bull just come off the herd by himself because an old bull, right? And that bull came out at eight yards. And he said, they didn't, he didn't see us. He just sensed us. And he and he wanted, he said he made the comment. He said, "I wonder if that stuff that uh, Mike Slinkard sells what what do they call those uh, X X suits? You know, I wonder if they just sense the you know if that really truly has some some merit in that situation when you're really super close like that. I would think it would some that electromagnetic field. You know, it's just like we can feel yeah. people staring at you." You know, there's got to be some, especially when everything is trying to eat you. I would think that there's got to be some. Yeah, there's got to be something to this because I swear to God, there's been many times at tournaments I'll be like, man, that guy's shooting really freaking good. And I kid us, hey, have you watched so and so? And then all of a sudden the guy misses. It's like, I cursed him. Yeah. <laughs> I got to perfect yeah. that. <laughs> are, you, are you mostly calling to elk or are you just trying to spot? You know, I did. I am not a great caller. And I don't think you can call really big bulls off cows very well. So I tend to locate and move on them. Sometimes, right. you know, I'm a little too aggressive. You know, I think, I mean, I it's like you never know what to do in certain situations. You just try to, you try to play it. If you're solo, like I was, I had a guy that wanted to film it. So he was right on my left shoulder all the time. So I didn't really have a guy behind me. I think the biggest key to elk hunting and calling him in is you need two or three calls two at least one to two callers back and so you can keep the elk fired up and the other guy can slip in or you know or they call them by you you know where you don't you don't because they know exactly where that sound come from right oh, i use yeah. i use decoys a lot too yeah um, i love the ultimate predator decoys i shot my mountain goat with it a couple, about three or four years ago i shot a a mule deer last year with it in Nebraska. It was it was a cool like an eight ten yard shot. It, I mean, it could just it was it was pretty neat to use it and just see the deer's reaction when he saw it. And are you kind of using that as a cover, or are you using that as your strategy to get close to them? Both, both, both. And I, 
I, I use it to give me a little bit more time to range and to also give me some cover for movement, you know, when I'm really close. Yeah. And, but yeah, I, I shot a coyote the same way. I put a grunt call in my mouth. I had this coyote behind a yucca bedded down and I just, because I'd screw, screwed up a mule deer. So I, I put the full draw and, and put the grunt call in my mouth and hit the grunt call. He pops up and he sees that decoy turn around, looks at it and gets hammered, but. Right. <laughs> yeah. I think decoys are way underutilized, especially. Yeah. For- I, I mean, for elk, especially, I, I think, you know, I had a bull like the last hour, pretty nice 320 bull, uh, had him for, for probably four to five minutes at 15 yards. I could not get a freaking shot. He just sat there looking at me and I could see the top of his head. And then I finally, after about a minute and a half, two minutes that I said, my, my decoys on my backpack, I kind of stripped my backpack off, pulled the decoy out and I Velcro it took total cluster. I mean, I Velcro kept getting stuck and finally I get it on there and I, I pop it up where he could see it. And then I hit my cow call again. And that kind of enticed him a little bit more more where he got up a little higher and moved and so I tried to circle around on him and he he kind of spooked off a little bit and he gave me one shot through a hole about that big at about 50 and I just kind of I just kind of pulled my head the last second to gauge the yardage again and that's all it took he's gone right yeah elk seem to have an extra element of luck to them they uh, managed to get away with it and they know how to stop right behind a freaking bush or a cedar tree. And then they mm-hmm. directly away. I think I've seen whitetails and deer do that stuff too, but, but, um, elk are really good at it. So, yeah, kind of what, what you're saying on ground blinds, I think, uh, I think one of the big things that I've learned in ground blinds is it lets you get away with more movement. Um, you do need to darken it up pretty good inside, but I like, yeah, in your opinion, I like vertical slits in my blind vertical holes. Um, yes. I'm, I'm a big guy. I'm six, six and I've sat in some ground blinds that were pretty sketchy to try to get a shot off inside. And are you, are you shooting out of the chair? Um, yeah. You kneel I, I mean, I've shot, I've, I've did whatever with what I needed based on, cause most of the time I'm with other people and Sarah ground blinds and, but I, I've had the option to shoot out of, you know, blinds that are windows like this and then windows that are vertical. And I, I think yeah. I, I tend to like the vertical slits, you know. Yeah. Number one, you yeah, block. I agree. Them. Yeah. Yeah. Just- I, I love blinds. I think they give you a huge advantage as far as being able, to, mostly for us, it's, it's areas that we can't hunt, you know, out of a stand whether we need it. And a lot of times too, it's based on the wind where we can't get into the timber with them, but we can get out in the food source and have something with a blind to be able to, to utilize them. Um, but I agree. Vertical windows seems to make it a lot easier. We also take like a blanket and put it down in our, in the floor. And that just seems, especially if you're on, you know, leaves or corn or anything else, it makes it a little more quiet and yeah. for sure you can get away with a lot more movement in there really good for taking other people. Right. You know, my, my, my wife's first antelope, we had this guy built buddy of mine built these blinds. He built them out of four pieces of plywood with some, uh, hog fence. I had five people in that blind. my wife, <laughs> my wife's mother, my wife's father, 
my daughter at the time, she was my stepdaughter. She was like seven, you know, none of them had ever been hunting, you know, and it was, right. it was and then me and they're trying to coach her through her first animal and video at the same time. It was, it was pretty fun, but, uh, it just, it allows for that type of experience too. But you, you normally run lighted pins inside of a blind. Cause that's one of the things that I found big time. I couldn't see my pins at all. Yeah. So I haven't had much of an issue. Um, now my fiance, we she you typically we even put turn them on as soon as we get in there, just because she has a little bit harder time seeing the the pins. But um, I don't really have too much of an issue seeing my pins unless we get you know where it's really getting in the last 10, 15 minutes. But yeah. uh, I don't even I can't even tell you the last buck that I shot out of a ground blind. They've almost all been out of stands, so I really okay. haven't faced that issue too much. Yeah. What what's your what's your favorite kind of stand? Honestly, I've been using been doing the whole saddle thing. Oh. I swore I would never never be that guy, and I would never go and and be in a saddle all the time. And, mm -hmm. uh, and I killed my biggest deer ever last year doing the saddle hunting thing. So I, I, um, I did I did, yeah. I did that Kansas last year. I've got this thing called a Guido's tree harness. You ever seen it? Uh, it's kind of a saddle. I don't know that I want to see that. <laughs> no, no, it actually, it's a saddle, but it's got a flat bottom in it. And it's work. Okay. You flip it, it just work. It flip it up like a backpack. It actually works pretty yeah. good. It's just those trees down in Kansas are not straight. And they're just, yeah, it is freaking nightmare. The first time I ever used it, I'm, I really learned a lesson that I kind of, I was looking around trying to find, you got, you use a step on the bottom or do you use actually screwing steps for your, to move around a tree? No. Yeah. I use the steps and then a platform. A platform. Okay. So I'll have a little, yeah, a little platform that's probably, I don't know. It's probably like 12 by 12 or something like that. Yeah. I um, see you guys using those. That's the, I think that's the key to it. Oh yeah. That makes, it gives you way more freedom and gives you the ability to one, it's a lot more comfortable. And then two, you know, there's a lot of these guys that they can, they can, you know, I'm right-handed. And so I'm setting up most of the time where I'm just trying to be able to basically be in position and shoot everything to my left and kind of give up my right there. I know other guys, a lot of guys that, you know, they're able to turn around and, um, and shoot both ways. For me, it's one getting away with that much movement when I have a deer there that close yeah. is really difficult and two. Um, so far I haven't been able to get it where I feel confident enough in my shooting unless it was like 20 or under, uh, to, to take that shot just because your footing isn't as good and you're having to adjust that tether, you know, where it's allowing you to spin all the way around. Huh. So I'm Interesting. trying yeah, to put I myself mean, in situations where they're coming to my left. That's what I'm trying to do. I got cramped up the first time I ever used it. I was, I was, I was just trying to. I wasn't going to shoot this buck, but I was just trying to like practice getting in position on it. And I, man, I cramped up so bad trying to maneuver my body around that tree. And, but I feel like I'm six, six, 250 pounds. And time you put my day pack up there to bow, I must look like Sasquatch sitting in a tree. Then were you getting picked off a bunch? Yeah, it was, I was, yeah, I was getting picked off big time. I yeah. Like, this sucks. Were those mostly cottonwoods? Yeah, cottonwoods with some, I don't even know what those little other scrub trees are I was in, but they were just, okay. 
gnarly. I know that. Yeah, yeah. Those types of trees, man, are. Or, yeah. I hate They're too big. I'm not a you know I'm I'm not a big whitetail expert though. I've I've killed you know three or four pretty nice bucks, but all at the the expertise of somebody else, pretty much. So, right. Mont- Montana is actually the greatest place in the world to hunt whitetails. There, I think they're stupid. You know, yeah. I mean, nobody the place we were hunting, they just don't get hunted a lot. So you just watch them for a night or two, and then just both of them I killed up there. I I. We just watched them come out of a corner and just popped a tree stand up that afternoon and killed them, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Especially with alfalfa out there. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. the, only, the only kind of crop around and the only thing that is good vegetation. And so right. it's, it's slam dunk to get them patterned on that alfalfa. Yeah. Cool. I get this question a lot. How important are my stabilizers? Well, stabilizer is probably one of the most important things on my bow. Its job is to control the motion before, during, and after the shot. That helps us hold steady. It helps hold the bow still while the bow is loading and unloading from full draw to static. And it also controls the bow against our mistakes, so it makes it more forgiving. With Beastinger, you get a lightweight, high modulus bar with vibration dampening built into the bar. This is very critical in terms of getting the most out of your stabilization system. If you want to learn more, check out bstinger.com. My question too I had for you is uh, I was reading through some of your stuff on your guys' website and it seems like you're pretty big into, you know, scrapes. And that's a subject that's always kind of interested me because I had hunted with a guy good friend of mine he's actually yeah he sent me a picture he's a guy I used to shoot competitive 3d with and he's older now so he's hunting with a crossbow and he's killed some really nice bucks and he sent me a picture of a well over 200 inch deer the other day he's after but uh um i remember hunting with him one time and and he i we put a tree stand up and there was a scrape right below it and i just man i just was not ready for the action i mean i i was kind of a rookie you know i didn't know what i could get away with it you know, right. it was funny that I've always been kind of a long range shooter and a mule deer, it'll sit there and take it like a champ, you know? And I remember I, I was trying to shoot a doe for first one I shot was like close to 70 yards. Well, it was like two body lengths away by the time the arrow got there. This is Oklahoma. Yeah. I, swear, I swear those deer on crack cocaine down there. But yeah. uh, the second one was, uh, I think it was around 38 or 40 and duck the arrow again i'm like good lord yeah oh yeah white tails move on yeah you know and that's you know honestly that's one of the reasons i i I use the setup that i do for arrows um are you familiar with the thorn broadhead i've heard of them yeah so thorn flies completely closed so it allows me to run a really small fletching because i have a friend in in south africa well he's not in south africa anymore he's uh Steve Cobreen is the guy's name, and I'm going to bring him on this podcast eventually because the guy, I'd like to bring him on for a full series. This guy is like the quintessential British explorer. I mean, the guy's killed more SCI world records in more places than you could shake a stick at. Just the, the stories this guy has is just, it would just be amazing to share with everybody. Right. Just all the adventures, you know. I mean, he talks about walking around in a jungle at full ready to shoot some little pygmy antelope right, for 10 hours at a time. 10 and, hours? Yeah, because you're going to get a shot. It's going to be like that, you know? Yeah, you know, just, just stuff the guy. It's just very, very unique, you know? 
Yeah. I have this podcast, uh, Pedro Ampuero. He's from Spain and he's done some really cool stuff too. A lot of Ibex and, you know, he's hunted those big Argali sheep and stuff. And yes, you know, the I difference. Think, does he make some videos? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's got some cool videos. I've seen some. Yeah, he does. He, he does. We'll have him on again too because he's got a lot of, a lot of cool stuff, you know. Yeah. He's his hunts are way out of the norm. I, I liked watching his stuff. Yeah, that's always what always intrigued me, but I'm 54 now, and that stuff's starting to take its toll. You know, yeah. I might have do adventure hunts. We did a caribou hunt last year. It was, that was a lot of fun, but uh, I guess we're getting off subject a little bit. But back on scrapes. So you guys, you know, people talk about building, you know, mock scrapes or sh- existing scrapes. Ex- explain to me and every other ignorant guy out west here doesn't know anything about whitetails what 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 how do you hunt scrapes and what's the advantage of using the existing scrape or building you know a a mock mock scrape scrape. yeah so scrapes are basically a communication method for whitetails so obviously whitetails don't do like you and i are right they don't go up to each other and and say hey tim how are you they utilize their glands right so they have forehead gland, their preorbital gland, um, interdigital gland. So like when a doe stomps at you, right, you see a doe stomping, it seems as though that's kind of just a meaningless act of she's perturbed, right? Because what she's actually doing is, is the interdigital gland between her hooves is she's putting that scent into the ground, which tells other deer that there's danger there. So if you've ever had a deer stomp at you and then you had a deer come later and stand in that same place and then freak out and you couldn't figure out why, it's because they're, they've actually put that interdigital scent on the ground. And so then that deer knew there was danger there. So right. when they, yeah, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty intricate actually with, with how they communicate. So a scrape is the exact same thing, right? So is what they're doing is they're putting their preorbital gland, which is right, you know, below their eye on those sticks. And they're basically letting deer know that they're in that area. Um, those will hit scrapes all the time, but they'll also hit them, especially when they're in heat and letting the bucks in the area know that they're now in heat, right? So those scrapes can be a super beneficial way to one, figure out what deer are in your area. Because one of the first things that a buck, a new buck will do when he comes into an area, it's go hit a scrape, right? Especially if he's going to be a dominant buck, he's going to let everybody know, hey, you know, big Charlie's in town, you guys better watch out. Uh, and, And that really communicates to those other deer around that there's a new guy in town um and so those scrapes we've learned the thing that's great about them is the midwest isn't quite as easy to pattern deer as it is out west right like montana those deer you can almost get those deer down to the minute right Right. now you could you could do the same thing here if our tags or our season excuse me opened in september but it doesn't it doesn't open until october so those deer get out of velvet they get off their summer patterns and they start getting a little bit more erratic. And then here we have quite a bit more timber than some of those places out West. So getting some kind of pattern and consistency to these deer gets really difficult. And so they'll hit scrapes and communicate like that year round, but they'll really, really start hitting them as the rut gets closer because they're establishing these territories, establishing dominance and communicating with these other deer. And so if you can be finding a buck, that's hitting one of those scrapes during daylight hours, anytime before November 1, really, the chances of him doing that again and being consistent is really, really good. So it's a simple way to, it's 
it's a simple way to be able to get a deer to do something reliably more than once. So that to me is the biggest advantage of it to not only find a deer, but actually to be able to kill one. Now you can't, if you're going to go and put your, you know, you're going to go and put a scrape on the edge of a field that may not help you that much as far as actually killing one. It may give you great inventory, but that doesn't mean that that deer is going to be getting there during daylight hours. That, so, that was my next question going to be is like, what, what, you know, you see lots of pictures online of deer hitting scrapes at night, but yes. what, what percentage is it based on, you know, big animals in general just tend to want to stick to cover till daylight, you know, till, absolutely. you know, during daylight hours, but yeah, scrapes, scrapes on a field to me is personally is pretty much useless unless it's strictly for inventory. If I'm trying to kill a deer over a scrape, I want it to be in the timber near his bedding area. And so that's, that's where it gets a little bit dicey, right? Because in order to find those scrapes, you have to be in those areas as well. Um, so at that point is what I'm doing on most of these places. It comes from post-season scouting that I'm doing during shed season, walking around, you know, doing, uh, looking for antlers and, and really just scouting and finding those scrapes that a lot of times they'll open those up year after year. And then I know that it's there. And then if I can put a camera in there, um, you know, if I can get one, I killed a, a really large eight-year-old deer a few years ago and I killed him over a scrape. And so I got one picture of him on like October 11th or 14th or something like that. And that was all I needed to know that he was back into that area. And mm -hmm. I sat there four times and I killed him on the fourth time. Awesome. So, yeah, yeah that, be... that, that's cool. Yeah. I mean, are, is, are, are sometimes, are they on road systems inside the woods or trail systems or is that typically where you find them or? Yeah. Any, anywhere that's going to be a high traffic area, okay. you know? Um, and then you're like your rubs, there's a common misconception with your rubs typically. Right. So you'll see a, a, a really big rub in a bedding area. And people will tell you, oh, there's a big buck bedding here. Well, that could be true. He could be he could be constantly hitting one tree and bedding in that same spot. But more than likely is what it is, is there's numerous bucks that are going through that um, same location and they're hitting, they're all hitting that same tree, yeah. right? Because that's another communication method for them. So that's something that um, we've learned. We used to think the same thing, that it's only one buck, you know, and that's yeah, his area. I I would bet trail cameras have changed people's perception on a lot of things. You get to see a lot of things you normally wouldn't have. You know, I, I've never, I've owned a few of them, but honestly, I've never like lived in a place where it was very conducive to, to actually run them that much, you know? And, but I know everybody out, out East just eats, sleeps and breathes by them. And I understand why. I mean, it makes sense, but they banned um, them here because some of the outfitters just, frankly, are out of control with them, you know? Right. Yeah. So. It's one well, and your cell camps now have really changed that game because yeah. it's, you know, you're getting live information. You're getting real time information that, um, that has made a big, big difference in the amount of deer that get killed. I think. Yeah. I think it's getting, it's getting to the point where it's like, even like the muzzle loaders and rifles getting technology is getting a little bit is pulling some of the ethics out of it, you know, and some yeah. of the, to me, some of the, the fun of hunting is not knowing what's over there going to, Absolutely. A, but whitetail hunts differed that way. I think it's, it's totally different in, in regards to 
most people are hunting a piece of property that they're used to. Um, I mean, I think that becomes the big challenge when we get into our next topic is introducing kids and non-hunters into the outdoor lifestyle. I mean, how do you do it? I mean, when there's so much private land, there's, you know, most public land has got so much people on it. How do you take a kid out like we did when we were growing up? You know, we, the whole family would just chuck up the Grays River in Wyoming and we'd hunt for a week, you know, and that's just hard to do anymore because it's not that easy for everybody to get a tag and, and I think that is uh, like my podcast with with Michael Waddell. Is that, I mean, he 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 claimed that you know, or stated that one of the biggest fun things about hunting is the the personal interaction you have with with people in hunting. I mean, that's what's fun. I used to, I told him a story where I went on a doll sheep hunt by myself, and it was like the most miserable experience of my life. It was like it was not fun, and oh, yeah. to have somebody to share it with and. You know, that's life in general, I think, you you know. So, you know, yeah. what, especially like Iowa, you look at, I mean, Iowa, a lot of people go to Iowa. I know several of my friends have moved to Iowa just for the whitetail hunting, you know. And mm-hmm. uh, my cousin actually lives out there. She killed a 196-inch buck last year. She's a, she's an animal. Her that's husband is a little guiding too, I think. But, uh, but yeah, she's always been ate up with hunting. Right. Good for her. That's a giant. Oh, it's a heck of a buck. I heard, I told her, her, it was a drop time buck. He said, your drop time has a cheater. (laughs) Right. So yeah, it was, it was a hell of a buck. Yeah. I don't know if I had a picture of it. I think it's in our catalog. Yeah, there it is. There we check that out. Here you can see it. Man, that mass is unbelievable. Yeah, that's a heck of a deer. They they get some big ones over there. She's she showed me some sheds that are just crazy, man. It's like, but uh, in, in Iowa, deer. Yeah, 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 yep, yeah. You know, I think that's a really interesting question. Um, I think that's kind of a tough one to answer because it is, as far as you know, here in Iowa, the, there's not that much public ground to begin with. Um, right. And I think when you're introducing new people, the benefit of going with somebody is that typically you're going to be able to give them a little bit more of a natural experience. I mean, they're going to get to see deer. They're going to get to see how they, how they act normally, um, where public, it's just like, I tell people that are going, that want to go out West on their first elk hunt. Oh, I know people have a big misconception. Yeah. Yeah. They all say, Oh, I want to go do it myself. And I want to do public land over, over the counter, all this, you know? And I'm like, well, if you're trying to learn, you, you couldn't give yourself a worse situation to do that because you're yes you're taking the most difficult elk in the most difficult places and you're trying to learn how to hunt elk um i would much i would tell you you'd be way better off going with an outfitter or somebody who knows what they're doing first and learning before you go and try to trek into that or be dedicated enough to know that it's going to take you a few years to figure it out yeah i think Um, one of the one of the big misconceptions for for people coming from east to west is they always go opening day yeah. And I would, whenever I hunted like I do, I would never, you can have the first two, you know, my friend Kyle Douglas says he prefers that. I, I just don't, I'd, I'd rather locate them. They'd be herded up a little bit more. The rut activity is a lot higher. Like my hunt ended to the 19th. I mean, they were just, you'd cow call to an elk and they'd shut up. It was like, it was crazy. Right. And yeah. I know see- a lot of people that like that first week of October. Yeah. It seems to be like places like Arizona and stuff. It, 
even Southern Utah, I think I I think that first week of October is it's almost like the rut just is slowly backing up a little bit, you know. Yeah. But, but maybe it is with the weather. The weather patterns changing the way they are. Right. Yeah, so, who knows? Yeah. Um, but I think and so here in the Midwest, you know, you have a lot of private ground and uh and then you have a lot of ground that's bought strictly for deer and leased, same thing. Um, but I would say if, if somebody's dedicated, it, this could be difficult for a new hunter, but if somebody's dedicated, you can still get permission on them in the Midwest. You can still knock on doors and get permission. Okay. It's not like it was, I think, 20, 30 years ago when my dad was younger and then he was going and knocking on doors. You can't just go and knock on somebody's door anymore and get a yes, right? You got to come up with different ways to build a relationship with them sure. or find where those landowners are um hanging out to be able to build some of a relationship with them and right. then ask them to to hunt you know trying to at first help them out with something but you can absolutely still get permission here in the midwest right it just you know i look at people like my daughter's boyfriend for example uh he made the comment to me the other day he says i i just i feel like bow hunting or hunting is something that you know you have to be taught by somebody that knows it's not something that's easy just to go out and do it you know um, i was at my one of my buddy's weddings last weekend and his his mother her his wife's mother may talk was talking about her daughter and and she said this girl just had the desire to learn how to hunt and and, and to fish and so she reached out to some of the out outdoor people to help her with the fishing part of it and and she went and worked for an outfitter. I mean, that's that's pretty out of the norm. You know, she worked for an outfitter up in Northwest Territories or something as a packer. You know, that's yeah. you don't find that kind of uh, desire in most people. But uh, no, I, I think it was with I was talking to Ted Nugent last week on a podcast, and we were talking about the fact that if you want to change numbers, and I and people like I, I say this to people all the time, even at archery tournaments, like you you want to you want more people to do this. It's a very simple concept. If every single person here brought a person with them, your numbers double. Okay. Yep. And people are not going to go out of their way. I mean, I, you can stoke the fire. Once the fire is lit, I mean, people will do whatever. I mean, it's crazy what parents will spend for their kids to, to shoot a sport or, you know, and I think, and I've always said that if, if our hunting will get behind competitive shooting whether you competitive have you competitively shot at all i mean i've entered some tournaments, tournaments and stuff but not like seriously you know yeah. try to compete right but you got a little background in in yeah I've got, i go to 3d shoots every year yeah okay so i mean that's a good way for people to really get their skill sets up too and but I, I and i've always said that if 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 we just grow that side of the sport those people won't necessarily all hunt but they'll, when it comes time to, you know, make a vote on it, when it comes time to, us, you know, I run into people all the time in my travels. I travel a lot that when they hear that I, I shoot archery or something, that they, they're very intrigued by it. I think majority of people are very intrigued with the activity, but they also have a stereotype of who they think a hunter is, yeah. and what type of person a hunter is. And I think one of the big benefits of competitive archery is that it introduces people that aren't necessarily hunters to people that are hunters it tends to break down that stereotype when it comes time for them to 
you know, when they're in a conversation with their non-hunting friends or it's time to vote on a particular, you know, piece of legislation or act, you know, that is pro or con bow hunting, I think we stand a much better chance to have support, you know, if we have a, a very big, you know, competitive archery scene also. Yeah. I think that there's a really simple, easy solution to it. If you wanted to increase the hunter numbers. And I think that is what, if you made it where it was a system where each person went to introduce somebody to hunting, you got to incentivize them. I would love to say that everybody would do it out of the goodness of their heart. And that's just not, you got to incentivize them. And I think there's a super easy way that the States could do that. If you made a, a deal here in Iowa, where, you know, the only way to get entered into hunting this state park or this place where nobody else could hunt mm -hmm. is you had to mentor somebody each year, you'd have more new hunters and you know what to do with. Think of the West. I mean, I'm sure you guys have units where if the only way to get into that unit would be to, uh, um, to have to take somebody to get entered. We have this program called dedicated hunter. Um, and, the problem we run into out here is there's not enough wildlife to go around for the number of people that hunt, right? So right. we want to hunt. So the dedicated hunter does is it, you have to put in a certain amount of work hours with the game and fish department and they have projects like they'll build, uh, um, they'll put, uh, you know, water catch systems out in the desert or they'll work on a variety of different tree removal projects or things like that. And, um, but you get, you have to do a certain amount of hours, then you're guaranteed a tag two out of those three years. Yeah. yeah. So a lot of people yeah. do that. Yeah. I mean, incentive drives everything. I've always said that. Absolutely. But yeah. Yeah. I think it's a, it's an interesting place where it's at right now though, because it, it definitely seems to be trending upwards as well, as far as total hunter numbers. Yeah. I mean, I used to, I used to go to Idaho, buy a tag over the counter for elk. And if I killed one early, I go buy another tag because they were left over. Now they sell right. out in 25 minutes. You can't even get a tag. It's, and I, it's just because people have, the internet's kind of just spread everything around where people feel like it's, they can go out and do it. You know, you got the, some of the TV shows and guy, online guys going out West and it, they've, they've made it seem doable for other people. So. And it's tough. I'm I, I'm with you. I grew up in Wyoming. I honestly never killed an elk with a bow until I think I was 19 or 20. I I, I joined the army, went to Alaska, and when I came home in 1997, I didn't kill my first elk with a bow until 04. It was crazy. I mean, I oh, hunted, and I had hunted a lot, you know, but um, yeah, there's just a lot more access to information nowadays. Yeah, you know, you you able to find everything online in a YouTube video on um, articles. You know, it it's much more simple to figure out the rules, the laws, regulations. Where I think probably even even ten years ago, still there was a a lack of data that made it easy for people to go out west. I think that's why you saw so many people in Colorado. Yeah, Colorado's tough too because I I went over there and hunted with Aaron Snyder one time. And I was all excited. We went in high country and Aaron's got a pretty big reputation. I try, I, I call him all the time, you know, when I have high country, you know, if you have, you, you should watch his, our podcast we did together. It's pretty entertaining usually, but, uh, yeah. um, but he's, he's an expert in, in back country hunting and, and, uh, 
I would never want to live in a tent as much as he does. But uh, whenever I have a question, you know, and there, there's certain way, yeah, I look back over the years and how I hunted Idaho before and how I would do it again in the future, you know, it, it's two different animals and it's just tough. And I'm just getting to the age where I don't know if I really want to do that anymore. It's just, yeah. I just, I'd rather save my dollars and pay for, you know, try to get a tag in Arizona or up in Montana or something that's a little bit more, you know, laid back. <laughs> yeah. I could see that for sure. But I, I do, I'm, I'm on both sides. I like sometimes, especially with camera guys, it's a lot easier to be able to have a lodge or something, but at the same time, those backcountry hunts too, they, they seem to provide the best stories. Oh, they, there, there is, man. I mean, we had one of the coolest things that happened to us this year. We were, we decided we were going to spike camp into this ridge because it was just too much to go in and out of this place. And we had put, uh, I mean, we, we, we had gotten over there and, uh, we just got into our little camp, which is under this tree boughs that we kind of dug in underneath this tree and we were right in the saddle where a lot of them were crossing and stuff. And it had just gotten dark and I'm just sitting there on my little mat and I got a bivy sack, you know, and I'm just firing up the stove to cook something. I mean, this elk, he bugled like, I swear to God, he was on the other side of the, the pine boughs. I mean, it sounded like he was five hey. yards away. Scared the living crap out of me, but you know, I'll always remember that too. You know, it's just, it's, it's cool to lay out there in the middle of them at night, just screaming all around you. That's, it's, it's pretty intense feeling. It's something that, you know, you, you just can't explain to people that have never, you know, experienced it. So yeah, we had a lot of good, a lot of good times on the hunt. Didn't kill anything, but man, it was still at the end of the hunt. I don't know that I've ever been in a situation where I've hunted that hard and just felt like, I was okay with not getting anything. Right. Yeah. And I, I, I wouldn't, like you said, you guys are hunting does. I'd encourage my first animal with a bow was a doe. I mean, I would encourage people to, if you want to try elk, another way of getting into it is out here in Utah, for example, you can go out in these premium units and you can hunt cows and spikes with a bow. So you get a chance to be around a lot of elk and yeah. take a cow home and they're good eating. They're, they're still a heck of a lot of fun to, stick an arrow through a big old fat cow too so oh yeah i've shot several cows any anything that can give you experience and and help give you knowledge on on units on the animals you're hunting anything like that i think it's going to be beneficial for you majorly yeah, uh, when you do drop the bag or just in your progression as a hunter yeah if your first elk you ever see behind your pin site is a you know a 350 bull you're probably gonna have a you hard lose yeah, you yeah. have a hard time handling that probably. So, yeah. And where's the fun in that? You got to have something to work up towards. You know, some people get lucky, you know, and then they have to try to live up to that the rest of their life. <laughs> right. Yeah. I'd rather start lower and work my way up. Yeah. I pretty much have to learn everything the hard way. I swear. I just got back from an air rifle tournament and I thought I had it all figured out and back to square yeah. one. Right. <laughs> Not square one. I think I've I've got up to about square seven or eight now, and it's just like, but it's amazing. This, you know, I'm at the top of the archery game, but it's like, and you realize how long that took me. I tell people all the time they want they want success like that. It took me 20 years to win my first pro tournament, and I think about that all the time. I, you know, and I, I remember hearing people 
talking behind my back when I was won that first one and they were like, oh, I just got lucky. And I thought, you guys have no idea the mountain I just climbed. You have right. no idea. And I think I went for I went for almost seven or eight tournaments. If I made the shoot off, I won the tournament. You know, it was just how many have you won now? Oh, I don't even keep track. That just keeps you down. Good for you. That's I awesome. Just, I just go to every tournament. I go to every target trying to hit, make the best shot. And I think if you compartmentalize it that way, if you if you sit here and worry about, you know, some of these guys have a body count of how many animals they kill. I I don't care. Makes no right. difference. I mean, I doesn't. It's just kind of egotistical in, in a certain sense. To I don't know. I don't care. It doesn't matter. What matters is the next one. You know. Then yeah. as I get older, what matters is is me leaving what I've learned to the next generation. You know, how am I going to, how am I going to leave what I know to empower people to enjoy the sport of archery? Because even, you know, in 2024, there's a lot of archery and bow hunting has a lot of ignorance in it. There's a lot of, there's not been a very good source of learning and pro shops are, are becoming less and less. They just can't make it with all the online sales and stuff. And, yeah. Um, so there, there's a real need to educate people online and I think we're going to kind of wrap it up with this and I would encourage, you know, I, I uh, you know, appreciate you coming on and, and sharing some of your knowledge and uh, people can go to your guys' website. It's, it's, is it raisedhunting.com? Yep. It's raisedhunting.com. Raisedhunting.com. They've got some, you know, some of their products and tips and tricks on there. Uh, you can go to gold tips, uh, website and youtube channel there's lots of technical videos on there on building arrows tuning um i'd encourage people to get on there and learn i mean i like to learn i mean i like no matter what i'm doing i like to be better at it and uh let me ask you one question before sure. we sign off if you had to compare the two uh, a shot to win a tournament and a shot on a big bull which one is more difficult or rattles you more Tournament. Tournament? It just depends. Every situation is different, I guess. The problem with hunting is, is almost seems like you're rushed the entire time. You know, there are those times, probably the most, like I shot two caribou last year. Both of them didn't have a clue I was there. I mean, to me, that's the epitome of, of bow hunting. It gives you the time to calm down, to move your sight rather than make a hurried range judge fast go, you know, it just depends. I mean, I, I feel like tournaments give me the confidence that when I see 65 in my rangefinder, there's not even a, there's not even a thought in my mind that I'm going to miss. I've done the right. okay. Tournament archery has taught me how to prepare. Okay, from that standpoint. That being said, in 13 days, I never got a chance to execute that shot. So, yeah. um. When I see people, you know, building their equipment setups based off of certain criteria, I just, I, I, I want to chide them a little bit. I, and, and one of the things I'm going to do after we get off with you here is we have a, a segment called Hammer's Hacks. I mean, Hammer's kind of my nickname in archery. Um, it's a long story where it came from, but, uh, but one of the things I'm going to talk about is like sim simple thing, like a sight setup. A lot of people want to shoot a one pin sight, but 
It's more accurate, yes, marginally, but it's not as practical. So you have to, in a hunting situation, become more practical, where in a tournament system situation, I, I'm specialized in building that setup to be the most competitive possible. Okay, so there's just a, there's just a lot of, it, it depends on the type of archery too, you know? I mean, if it's indoor, indoor is a miserable game for me. I'm a little bit too high strung and a little too high type A for it. And it's kind of the game, I always tell everybody, it's the equivalent of telling a golfer if he misses a four foot putt, he's got to play for four days, but there's no way possibly he can win. And that doesn't fit my personality very well, or most people that have any type of high strung personality. Um, hunting, I making a shot hunting is probably the easiest thing I do in my archery career. You know, taking really? the hardest thing that I have hunting, the number one problem in hunting with a bow is the distance. You know, do you have time to get the range? You know, up close is not a big deal. You can be three or four yards off, doesn't matter. You know, I got on a giant mule deer last year, 35-inch buck, and popped over the ridge at him, and I went to range him, and I was trying to stay low enough, and it kept hitting the grass, right? And finally, I was like, I'm busted. I thought the deer was alone. Yeah. I didn't know he had does with him, and if I'd have known that, I would have taken a little bit more risk at the yardage. Um but I decided to judge it. And I mean, I'm one of the best yardage judges in the country, but it's different, right? People don't understand that yardage judging in a tournament 3D scenario is a, it's, it's a recall memory thing. I got 140 3D targets in my backyard. What I'm doing is remembering, but because it's a hunting situation where I have never seen that deer in that size, you can get close, but it's not that instant. I've seen that a hundred times, right? And if you practice that stuff hunting, you'll see that it's just probably biggest innovation for bow hunting has been the laser rangefinder. I mean, it's just, but then again, it's still in the bow hunting situation. That's still the biggest challenge because it takes time to do that. And if you're going to, you know, if I got a guy over my shoulder telling me the range, I mean, I could make about any shot there is out to a hundred yards, but when right. you have to make the range, the adjustment, the shot, that takes time and movement, and that's probably the hardest thing in archery hunting to pull off. You know, being in a stand or being in a blind definitely makes that um, easier. But a lot of times there's just this short window, you know, that you yeah. have. And if if you can't make that shot, you know, I mean, I had a shot like that at 50, about 50 yards on that last elk, and I, I had no doubt in my mind I could put an arrow right through it. And just didn't just needed a second <laughs> well yeah it, it that's all that's all it can come down to in bow hunting though is one second yeah that's all it is so i guess with that we'll kind of log off here i appreciate having you on uh, i encourage you guys to help us spread the word i think we got a lot of uh, good conversations you know to come in the archery ops podcast and um, I look forward to, uh, the rest of the hunting season. Um, what do you got planned for the rest of the year? Mostly whitetails. Whitetails white now. Yeah. We'll take over everything. We were, uh, I went to Colorado and hunted mule deer and then was in New Mexico with the, with the Primo's boys a few weeks okay. ago. And, uh, and so now it'll be whitetails pretty much here on out. How'd it go the first two? 
the first one went went pretty well. It was a learning experience. <laughs> um, we were at about 13,000 feet. And yeah, that was really the only place that I was finding any deer. But we did get close and, and I uh, missed about 100 and probably 150 inch mule deer. Okay. Which really, really sucked. That was the first deer I missed in a long, long time. Um, and of and course it was. Uh, yeah, let me give you a little tip on that. So one of the things that people need to take into consideration is is elevation. If you don't take a target with you, this Pedro Amparo called me and he was all bent out of shape because he missed this giant Argali sheep and God only knows what he paid for that hunt, you know. And it was a tough shot. It was over 100 yards, but, and I was giving him all the parameters, you know, I was up in elk camp. So I live at 4,500 feet. Elk camp was at 9,900. And I hadn't really shot my bow at elevation. I'd done some tests in the past. And so one after like the third or fourth afternoon, I went out and put a target up and oh my God, I was hitting like 12 inches high at a hundred. Right. So I had to get my, you know, sight tapes out and, and recite the bow in. And that's one of the things that, uh, you know, it's very important that if you go on a hunt like to Alaska or something, you need to have access to a target and you need to take sight tapes and the ability to recite in when you get there because air density levels at different distances. Now, if you're only shooting 20 or 30 or 40 yards, it isn't going to matter enough to, to make a difference, right? But as you extend those distances out and you go to high elevation like that with thin air, if you're planning on taking longer shots, especially for like mule deer, you better be prepared for them. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it was so it was a learning experience. It was a lot of fun. Um, yeah. and then New Mexico was great. It was a great time with those guys and my little brother killed his first bull. Um, awesome. So it was yeah, it was a lot of fun. Well, good so, deal. Well, we better wrap it up. Uh good luck hunting. I got one hunt left in Africa, a big one I'm pretty excited about going on. So we're doing a awesome. spot stock kudu Nile, a bush buck and and I'm gonna try to kill these little things called a mountain reed buck because they remind me of a coos deer. Right. I had shot at one, the the one trip I was in Africa, and it was just a really unique animal. And I remember being at full draw, I think it was 96 yards, and I said to the guide, I'm like, do you think he's going to jump? And he's he's pissing, and I'm like, eh, maybe not. That sucker was, he wasn't even close to that arrow when it got there. Right. I mean, it was crazy how fast he was. I mean, I was just like, wow. So I might yeah. have to build a, a a specific setup just to hunt that's that's a little more quieter. So, right. But yeah, well, good luck. That'll be fun. Good luck the rest of the fall, and uh, appreciate having you on. And uh, we're gonna sign out. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right, we'll see you. Hey, before you go, there's a great way to get even more info and tips. Follow this podcast and check out Gold Tip on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Thanks for listening. And as always, start tough and stay true.